So in Titus, what we've been seeing is, and, and as you might have seen the, the graphic earlier, the, uh, <clears throat> the constant theme has been of doctrine and works. Our, our, our subheading for the, th- for the uh, uh, sermon series has been sound doctrine, good works. This has been the continual emphasis of Paul to Titus. So just a quick reminder, Titus is a young minister who Paul has trained up, taken with him on missionary journeys, a very good friend of Paul. And he sent Titus to this little holiday island of Crete, little Vegas island where there was sin, where there was laziness, where there was debauchery, where there was uh, uh, all kinds of things that work against the Christian religion. But, God be praised, there was the work of the gospel among them. There was some who were saved and they were all in disorganized probably house churches, and there was no real leadership, there was no real order. So Paul sends Titus, go in, set them straight, give them what they need to be the kind of churches that glorify Jesus Christ. We've seen, to be a church that glorifies Jesus Christ, we individually and we corporately, we need sound doctrine that accords to the word of God. Without that, you don't have a church. You have a collection of people worshipping lots of different things. But we are unified by the truth of God. We approach God along the, the tracks of the, the truth that he has laid for us, out for us in his word. But then he also is emphasizing those things which accord with sound doctrine. Lifestyle, behavior, worldview, speech, activity in Christians' lives and in the life of the church, that is, good works. If you are not, your doctrine is not hitting the ground with a changed life, we're dishonoring the gospel of God. We've been seeing this, <clears throat> that God is, I've made a, a few statements here to summarize what we've been learning in Titus so far, that God is glorified in us, when we are transformed by him. God is glorified in us when his purposes, which he seeks to fulfill, are actually fulfilled in us. And so grace of God, the grace of God comes and it trains us, and we glorify the grace of God when we are being trained by that grace. Let me say it in reverse order. God is dishonored by us when we are not transformed by him, no matter how much of the LBC we have memorized. God is not, uh, sorry, God is publicly blasphemed in us when we who bear his name of Christian work against his purposes in us for sanctification. That while God's grace comes to train us, We make the grace of God a scandal by refusing to be trained. So can you look at verse 11 this morning? We're going to be reading verse 11 through 15, but also verse 7 and 8. But look at verse 11 as we sort of set our theme for this morning. It says there, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is one of the reasons why we have to live godly lives as men, as women, as slaves, as we're going to see as uh, Titus as a pastor. The salvation of God has come for all people. So all people have have a lifestyle to follow after and improve in. Verse 12, the grace of God has come training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I wonder if you were to be asked the first five words that come to mind when you hear the title grace. 
How would you define that? How, what would be the first five things that you would, the other words that you would pop out to sort of give that a theme to maybe a, a new Christian or a non-Christian friend? Very seldom, I think, we would probably hear people say training and discipline. And yet in Paul's mind, writing to Titus, he's saying the grace of God comes and it brings salvation. It brings forgiveness, but that is not all that grace is. It is not simply a past pardoning. It is a present empowerment and a future training. That is the grace of God that comes to actually lift us up out of our sinful patterns and give to us lifestyles that renounce ungodliness and worldly passions so that we can live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the grace of God not only justifies, it not only forgives, it not only pardons, but it also empowers. The grace of God trains. The grace of God equips and redirects and transforms us. So most Christians think, or many will, will sort of have the, the heart response of saying, well, sounds good, but why is this so necessary? Why is it so necessary that I be changed? Why, why do I need to be trained and transformed? God's given me grace. Forgiveness is here. My failures are paid for. Why be trained? What's the necessity of my training? Why the, the anti-gospel emphasis from this Pharisee named Paul on being trained? I'm trying to glorify the grace of God. Or, maybe we're not quite down that end of the spectrum, but we sort of come along a bit more and say that it's the grace of God that forgives us, and this would be most Christians that I engage with. The grace of God forgives and then the, the, the discipline or the judgmentalness or the, the holiness of God trains us. Before we go into today's text, I want to make the case that when you think of God's work in your sanctification, making you more holy, training you, disciplining you, I want you to think of that as God's grace. So, Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12 says, My son... And this is um, father to his, his son. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The father in Proverbs is telling his son, if you're being disciplined, you're being loved. Don't walk away and, and wonder why God's beating you up praise him, thank him, he loves you. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, then picks up that very verse and, and explains it. And it says, uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, in verse 7 of chapter 12, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Fathers don't care how the kids on the street act. He doesn't love them. They don't bear his name. He doesn't uh, give to them his family fatherly grace. But those in his household will be trained. They will be disciplined because he loves them. It's not as if God disciplines even though he loves us. He loves us. Therefore, he disciplines us. Let's go again. Revelation chapter 3. This is Jesus speaking to the church. And he says... Those whom I love, I reprove 
and disciplined. So be zealous and repent. One of the the biggest signs of God's wrath on a people group or a church or an individual is that God allows them to walk in their sin without repentance, without conviction, without affliction. If he just lets them go, he's showing that's not my child, they can go to the streets. So this, I I, want to, as we go back to Titus 2, it's the grace of God, it's the love of God which does not leave us in our sins after he has pardoned us from hell. But I think this, this, um, this mindset, I think, comes up, or this mindset that says grace is somewhat different to discipline, or there's some other motive that disciplines me. You know, why isn't God happy as the day he was when he forgave me? What happened to that God? Why is he now disciplining me? This idea comes up because most Christians have a very man-centered view of sin. I was to ask you, what's the big problem with sin? If you were to be speaking to your friend at work or your family member, and you're talking about the problem of sin. What's their ultimate problem? And many of us would say, well, it gets us to hell. We're going to receive punishment. That's the problem of sin. That's what makes sin so terrible. That's a man-centered, suboptimal, true, but suboptimal view of sin. The man, the woman who has had his mind forged by Scripture and is on its highest seat in their mind, God, and his holiness knows that the biggest problem of sin, it's not what happens to me because of it, but it's the fact that it offends and transgresses the holy God. That's the problem of sin. That's why there is such a disastrous, everlasting, infinite punishment to be paid in hell. That's what makes that make sense. But the big problem is that I'm offending God. And and so you see this play out in the lifestyle. If you can say, well, I've been forgiven, there's no hell for me, the big problem of sin is dealt with. Now, your problem of sin is dealt with. God still has a problem with lifestyles that are against him. If we are to think God's thoughts after him, if we are to have a mind of Christ, have our minds renewed day by day, we would realize the emphasis of discipline, of sanctification, of holiness is because as a Christian born again, my heart is to do the Father's will. My my recreated desires is to glorify Jesus. I hate sin because it offends God, not just because of where it gets me. And so... The emphasis of Paul here to Titus, to the church and the elders against ungodly living is because God needs to be glorified. The grace of God needs to be worked with so that God is honored in this world. So, grace has in its essence a doctrine, which we'll look at here from verse 11 through 14. There's the doctrine of grace the truth about it, the belief about it that is so necessary, sound doctrine, and there is duty. There is doctrine and duty of grace. And therefore, sound doctrine, sound works, as Titus has been, this book has been emphasizing uh, so much. Now, so when you look back over the last few weeks, but also look in your Bible back to verse 1 of chapter 2, we, we walked through the, the call of men, the call for women, the call for slaves, and we're also going to see the call for pastors like Titus. The reason 
the, the, the duty. That's the duty, how they should behave, how they should live. The reason that is so important is because it proves that the, the doctrine of grace is true. It, Titus has been emphasized, tell the men how to live because that will prove that the grace we believe is actually able to empower and change people. Tell the women how to live, because that will prove that the grace of God is true and able to change people. Tell the slaves how to live so unworldly and so opposite to the culture, so that everyone may see the grace that they believe and know that it's true, and it comes with the power of God. So this is why it's been so, so important. When women cherish their family and prioritize the home over worldly accomplishments, that's a, a matter of priority, and they disciple one another, and when men, through self-control and zeal, stand up to their calling in love and hope and faith, and they lead society and their families and the church, and when slaves reject this mindset of freedom that would get out of employment, and they submit to God's sovereignty our doctrine becomes believable to the world. So you'll see this down in verse 10. Halfway through, it says, do all these things, specifically it's talking about the slaves, so that in everything, not just their belief, not just their doctrine, not just Sunday mornings, but in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That is our great honor, to work with God in living out the truth that we believe because it shows that it is truly, truly true. So now comes a question. <clears throat> okay. And this is where churches disagree and this is where, this is really what makes a good preacher from a terrible preacher and a, and a, and a legalistic congregation from a grace-driven congregation. How do we see people empowered or conformed to What's the methodology to see people conformed to grace's doctrine and duty? How do we do that? Some people ask the, uh, answer that in saying, well, people will be changed as you give them an, an energetic and, 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 and vivacious experience. They need to experience an anointing from God and a touch of the Holy Spirit in, in, in whatever you can do on a Sunday morning, lights down, music up, whatever. Smoke machines on. Other people might say, what people need, these these darned sinners, they need law, they need discipline, they need to be spoken down to and, and rebuked, and they need to be driven by the law into the dust, and that'll empower them forwards. And, and, and other people, I, I pray this is us, we stand uh, uh, on the word of God and say what people need to become better Christians, for very base language, or to become more Christ-like, what people need to conform to the grace of God in doctrine and duty is more of the grace of God. They need grace. The grace that requires nothing of you in salvation is that very thing which produces in you works. The grace which asks nothing of you in Jesus Christ produces in you all manner of good works in this world. So we're going to see here an example in Titus's life and preaching, and then we're going to see the doctrine that ought to be preached and believed. So let's, uh, <clears throat> let's start opening up. We see here church leaders. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. I'll read 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Go down now to verse 11. 
For, because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. May God bless to us the reading of his precious, holy, inspired word that breaks down the bondages of the devil. <clears throat> so let's look at the Christian leaders. I've called this Christian leaders because it's not entirely and only elders or pastors because Titus is not really that. Titus is as he's been sent, he's not sent to be a live-in elder in Crete. He's gone to be a, a, a sort of a stand-in for Paul as an apostle. Go with the apostolic authority. Lay your hands on elders. Uh, ordain them and train them. And then eventually he's going to leave uh, to, to do more mission. So, but Paul is here speaking to Titus. And, and the principle does apply to all Christian leaders whether it's in training institutions, whether it's missionaries, whether it's uh, ministers in the, in the local church, of, on, on all levels, and elders, they all need to heed this advice. And this, going back to our main theme, the example and preaching of Christian leaders is how people conform to, the, to grace's doctrine and duty. <clears throat> so much of the book of Titus has been Paul reminding us, watch out who disciples you. It is not a choice of whether you will be discipled. If, if you think you just have no one discipling you, you're your own person, you're an island, you're unaffected by your traditions, your heritage, whether culturally or, 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 or racially or religiously, whatever, you're just, it's just you and the Bible and you're not affected by anything else, you are blind to say the least. Every one of us is being discipled by our work culture, by our friends, by our family, by the culture at large. Paul has written to Titus and said, beware the people. Let them know that they are either being discipled by the false teachers or the good qualified elders. That was chapter one. He said, you're going to be either uh, 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 discipled men, as he spoke in early chapter 2, you're going to either be discipled by the word of God and godly men, or the culture and your own worldly passions from within you. Women, you, you will either be discipled by the culture, or you will be discipled by biblical preaching and older women who come around you. You are being discipled one way or the other. They are pulling you in different directions. And, and the slaves as well, as well, he was saying, you are either being discipled by the rebellious and thieving slaves in your community or you're being discipled by Jesus Christ. Beware your mentors. All of us have them. We need to always aim and br to bring our life under the, the mentoring, the discipleship of the word of God assisted by corporate community. <clears throat> So, uh, uh, Paul is uh, commanding Titus here to be this, look at verse 7, a model of good works. Show yourself in all respects, he's saying. So, this leader, this Christian leader, he, he can't just stand up and say, here's the doctrine, here's the word of God, do as I say, 
Well, you dads, I bet you've said it. <clears throat> do as I say, not as I do. Just a teacher. I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not the guy to follow. I'm not Jesus. I'm, just, I'm still a sinner. Do what I say, not what I do. No, that's not Christian leadership. Christian leadership is, speaking of truth, and we'll look at this in a bit, but also lifestyle. This means at least that the Christian leaders, whether it's pastors, elders, uh, other leaders in the church or community, need to be visible. They're not locked away in some monastery, right? They're writing their books, reading their books, not touching the hoi polloi, as the Catholics used to call them, the, the plebs. No, they're among the sheep. They're, they're walking side by side so that you can see how I treat my wife. You can see how I speak to my kids, how I rebuke my brothers, how I encourage my sisters, how I, how I read the word, how I have disciplines. These are the, the leaders. That's what they're supposed to be doing, visible, so that in all respects they are a model of good works. And you'll see here, now you might think, in, he, he, he then changes to talk about the preaching. He says, and in your teaching, show integrity. But that word in, I don't know if you're, a, if you're a Bible marker. I'm not. I have an app for that. My Bible is pure. It will go with me to heaven. It's bound by eternal leather. Uh, but you might, you might want to either mentally or on your app or in the Bible, circle in and say, and put with. Uh, that Greek word can mean either uh, in the act itself of teaching, in this example, or along with your teaching, or consistent with your teaching. And I think that's what he means here, because he's already spoken about, uh, because he's particularly talking about his lifestyle, his activity, his behavior. And so I think it should read as, and along with your teaching, or consistent with your teaching, show integrity, dignity, uncorruptedness, that word integrity means. So you're not preaching one thing and then hopping off the track and then going on to how you actually live. You're not preaching against drunkenness and then sinking six kegs after the service. You're not preaching against uh, 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 sexual licentiousness and then chasing after the girls later. You are in all things. And this is to any of us who, who seek to be leaders or who seek to lead others just in our own small areas of, of influence by teaching and by lifestyle. Show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. I take that to mean, with Calvin, take that to mean his, his everyday conversation. He's not loose with his words. doesn't mean he never says anything that offends people. He's offending people frequently but soundly, healthily, carefully, lovingly. He's, a, he's an encourager. He's, he, he's, he's careful with his words. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. And here's the great emphasis or, or the motive for the man of God, the leader in the congregation or community. <clears throat> the motivation is that your teaching will silence the opponents. <clears throat> because this, it says here, that, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Now, you know, opponents of Christianity, when they don't have any ammunition against, does that stop them from shooting? Right? You're saying, oh, I'm living purely, is, is Paul's promise here, if I don't give them ammunition against my personality, they'll never speak against me like that. They'll all speak highly of me. No, of course not. People will slander, come up with falsehoods and revile you, no matter what. But the, the question to ask is, are they shooting at you ammunition that you gave to them? Uh, are you living in a way that, that the, the things they're throwing at you simply don't stick? 
They're, they're not real, uh, believable things. So that, so that this, this opponent, they, they, they seek to speak against the grace of God in your life. They seek to speak against your religion, speak against these bigoted views that you have. But the closer they get to see your life, they're only silenced more and more. And I, I can't say that he doesn't believe what he's saying because look at his life. I can't say that she's just this, you know, this religious, old-fashioned bigot, just saying these things to get a to get a ride. No, no, she she's living this way. She prioritizes and emphasizes her children and husband. These are ways that, as we live consistently, we stop the mouths of the opponents, in as much as it will be truly and fairly squared against us. But look over now to verse fifteen. <clears throat> They believe what you preach because they see how you live. But they must hear what you preach. Particularly Titus, this Christian leader, pastors beneath him, Christians who are leading. Verse 15, Paul says, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This ultimate question, how do we see? We, we look back on church history, we look back into the Word of God, the book of Acts, the, right back to, to, the, to the fall in the Garden of Eden. We look back and we ask the question, how is it that people are revived, awakened, and reformed to the Word of God? How does that happen? The answer is always and ever by the preaching of the Word of God. There are other ways that God works, but they are always tangential. They are always peripheral. The core way that God works is through his word. Wasn't it Martin Luther, who I love this quote, said that, that he did not reform the church. He just preached the word day in, day out, and drank beer, and God reformed the church. He preached, truth went out, he went home, had a couple slept easy, got up the next day, did the same thing. God's word is the power. In Revelation, we see, we see a picture of this. It is Jesus who appears over and over again in Revelation with a sword. Not a sword in his hand, but a sword coming out of his mouth. The question is, how does Jesus make war? How does Jesus go to battle? The answer is with the word of his mouth given to us in Scripture. But, but then we can sort of add to this imagery and say, what is it that Jesus has in his hand? Revelation 1 shows us that it's the angels or the elders of local churches. Where the Word of God is Jesus' weapon, that's the blade, it is set in the hilt of biblical qualified eldership. And where that is taken up and Verse 15 is obeyed, it's declared, it's exhorted, it's rebuked with all authority. That sword starts swinging and brings death to enemies. But it's, it's Jesus' death. It's Jesus' death that results in resurrection life. It brings reformation, regeneration, and revival among people where the word of God is preached. That's the emphasis of Titus. Does this, does this phrase here, all authority. Does that, does that bring a common verse to mind for you? All authority. Who is it that has all authority on heaven and earth given to him? It's Jesus Christ. 
He said in the Great Commission, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. And in your going, declare the word with the authority of the author. Because Jesus stands behind the word, and the Spirit empowers the word. We preach it not with my authority, not with the authority of a denomination or a bachelor's degree or a doctorate. We preach it with the authority, learned and unlearned, the authority of Jesus Christ because this is his word. And he's going to war against our sins, friends. So Titus is exhorted. Preach it loudly. Preach it strongly like hell really exists. Preach it like the Spirit of God really does indwell us and give us the power to overcome sin. Preach it like the war is truly raging and people in their pews need to rise in worship in their lifestyle and take up the arms of the Spirit or perish in their sins. Preach it as, as Paul sort of uh, 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 speaks in 1 Corinthians 14. He says this, this proverb of war. He says, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Men sleeping in the night and they hear some kind of brrrr. A couple of them wake up. Was that, was that the battle cry? Uh-uh. Somebody stood on a cat. I don't know. Go to bed. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the battle sound. But, but an indistinct sound wakes up and sets fighting nobody. Best you'll have a couple of people out still sleepy-eyed, just wondering if there's anything to do. And this is a picture of most of the Christian church. The people have this, this softly, sort of apologetically, very, very feminine given word, and they don't want to offend people, and I just really hope, you know, God will bless you with this. And, and, and so it's just, it goes out like a puff of smoke over the congregation, a mist in the pews, and people walk out wondering, am I... Are we doing anything? Are we supposed to? We gonna? No. Let, let, let's just pray together. Let's leave. Let's not do much. Go into the, the politics and, and you go, are we supposed to have a Christian view here? Is there like is there a Christian way to vote and, and believe and speak and preach? No, I don't, I don't know. Didn't hear much. Are we 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 act out sexually? And we go, is there a Christian way to ha- be married and pursue women and 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 be pursued by a guy? Is there? Is there? And, I don't know. Wasn't clear. Never came out loudly. Is there a Christian way to live? Yes, it's warfare. The bugle comes clearly out of the mouth of Titus as he trains younger men to come up and preach the word as elders in the local churches. Crete will be taken by storm. And historically, that is exactly what happened. Crete became a majority Christian nation or island, and God reforms the people there because verse 15 was obeyed. But we can ask, we can ask, what is the, what is the things to be declared? Right, we just skipped a whole chunk. I know you saw that. I know you want me to go back. You're annoyed that I just skipped some text. You're always telling me I need to stop preaching so short, skipping over so much of the word. But we're going back to it. So we've seen Titus be told, live and preach. But, but in the middle, he was told what it is that is his doctrine of grace to preach. <clears throat> and it's right here. The understanding of God's grace from these five verses is what it conforms us into our duties. We need to live out our duty or this grace will be blasphemed. So verse 11, what is this grace? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God appeared. This is not 
a, a, a force. The grace of God is not a, a sense or a tone or, 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 a, or a piece of piece of something that comes down from heaven. It's not a substance. It's a person. The grace of God that John says in chapter 1, they, they looked in Jesus and, and in him was grace. Grace upon grace we've received from him. Jesus is the embodiment of, the manifestation of the grace of God. Look over to verse 13, the second half of 13. He is the Savior Jesus Christ, or our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is that grace. And he, verse 14, gave himself for us. Jesus gave himself for us. Again, if you're, a, if you're an underliner, take to that word for. One of the most important words in the Greek New Testament. It's, its Greek word is, is huper. And its meaning is in the place of or in the stead of substitution. That, that's what the word for means. You know, he gave himself for us means he gave himself in place of us. It speaks to the reality of the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, without which we have no gospel. So, so Paul here, talking about the grace of God, it centers on the work of Jesus Christ in giving himself for us. The wrath of God coming towards us, he steps in, removes us, takes our sin and God's wrath. We were under the law, unable to obey. Christ removes us, stands in our place, obeys it for us. Substitution, the heart of the gospel. But friends, it was not a forced slavery that sent him in our place. It says here that he gave himself for us. He voluntarily took up that, that will and, and covenant of the Father and said, I will go for these people. Jesus was not sent down incarnate like, like a fallen god of the Greeks. He, he was not forced down here. He chose to come. What did Jesus say? He was arguing with, with the, the people of his day. He said, no one takes my life. No one has the authority to do that. I alone have authority over my divine life, and I choose to lay it down. And so he did. For you, for me, for any single person who will put their faith in him, Christ gave his life for you. You may think your life is filled with sin. Your whole life is just jam-packed with sin. Friends, let me tell you, the life of Christ is broader, higher, wider, deeper. It's an infinite, eternal life. Your little, your little 80-year max sin-filled Impure life is swallowed up in the life of Christ. Disappears like a drop in the ocean when you place your faith in him. It is gone. He gave himself for us and, and here was his motivation. <clears throat> he did it to redeem us from all lawlessness. He didn't do it to leave us in our lawlessness, pardon us of our lawlessness, but actually redeem, reclaim, take us back out of Egypt to himself. He wanted to possess us, rule us, lord over us because he loves us far too much to stay in the, in the symptomatic sinful sickness 
Right? Jesus is, is not some uh, uh, analogous of a doctor who comes to you dying of leukemia and says, you will not die. You'll live forever in this state of coughing up blood, waking up weak, aching in your joints. I love you. You'll never die. It's not the grace of God that just gives us eternal life as we are. The awakened sinner knows I despise these symptoms of sin. I despise my lifestyle. Take me out of it. And that is what Jesus does. He actually brings us up out of the miry clay, sets our feet upon a rock, gives us purity and gives him us to himself. Look at the end of verse 14. So that he would own, for his own possession, those who are zealous for good works. The hallmarks of Christian immaturity. One of the, the biggest signs of Christian immaturity is to call discipline legalism. Are you up early to pray? If you can't find other times in the day to pray, do you cancel some sleep? Get up early and pray. You legalist, don't ask me that question. I'm under grace. Are you weekly at church with, with, with almost nothing to keep you from there? You need, a, you need to be sick or dying or somebody close to you to be so to not be in the corporate worship of the Lord Jesus. You legalist. It's not all about attendance. Are you progressing in your Bible reading, consuming more and more as the weeks go on? You legalist. You Pharisee. You know, the Pharisees knew the Bible off by heart. Okay. They also breathed oxygen. Should we not do that? Are you looking at pornography and then calling it your, your thorn in the flesh? You know, we all have something we go to the grave with. God's grace is sufficient for me. You know, God's grace trains. Whatever the, the much-argued thorn in the flesh of Paul was, it wasn't pornography. It wasn't a sin. God doesn't let him in that and say, my grace is sufficient. He looks at us in our weakness and reminds us, hello, my, my grace is sufficient to pull you up out of this. You legalist. Are you teaching your children the word of God? Forging in them a discipleship that will, that will push back against the world and its culture? You Pharisee. <clears throat> you don't even ask that question. Let me read to you what, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a German Lutheran who died under the Nazi regime for his opposition to uh, the Nazi party <clears throat> and the continual preaching of the word of God and the gospel amidst that people. He said this. He spoke of cheap grace and costly grace. He said cheap grace means grace sold on the market like, like, like cheap jacks wears. I don't know what that means. Something cheap. Like, like, you know, trinkets. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. The man stands in the market and says, grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance and because it's been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using it and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it wasn't cheap? 
Cheap grace, he says, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace. Costly grace is the preaching of forgiveness and the requiring of repentance. It's like the the jewel hidden in the field for the sake of which men will go and sell everything he has. It's the pearl of great price which the merchant goes and sells all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. It's going to go on. This is a lengthy quote, but it is so very true. He says, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost the life of God the Son. So we don't, we don't see legalism here. We don't see works-based salvation. We see grace which comes freely to me, but which will cost me everything. The justified sinner passes from death to life, from earth to heaven, from sin to righteous living. Imperfect, but walking after Jesus Christ. Lastly, we're going to see here, down in, go back to verse 12. <clears throat> Grace is the blood sacrifice of his son, providing you a righteousness. Providing you a perfect, infinite righteousness and forgiveness before the Lord. This is the grace of God. If you have tried, maybe here this morning, you believe yourself to be in the grace of God, and and on the question why, you, you don't really know, but you're pretty sure if God's loving, if he's forgiving, if he's gracious, like it says he is, I'm the sort of person he would be gracious to. I'll, I'll probably be forgiven. I'm, I'm one of those saved ones. I'm not really bad. I look around me. There's worse people than me. I'm, I'm in the grace of God. Me and him have a good relationship. I don't talk to him. He doesn't bother me. But I'm, I'm sure I'm going to heaven. Friends, if you are not in Jesus Christ by faith, you are not in the grace of God. You are in sin. And against sin, God pours out his wrath. Sinners who die without the righteousness of Christ covering you, without your sins confessed to Jesus and your soul entrusted to his work on the cross from which he rose and now sits in heaven on the throne, if he is not your Lord, your Savior, your all, you don't have God's grace. This is a very exclusive path to forgiveness. It is in Jesus Christ alone. And to the rest of us, those who who really know that by faith we've passed into life. We have been forgiven. I want to ask you, have you, in verse 12, have you begun, have you seen in your life the training towards renouncing ungodliness? Do you see in your life a a renouncing of worldly passions? 
And do you see, by the Spirit and God's grace, as you press into the means of grace, you read the Word, you pray to Him, you have fellowship with the believers, are you seeing more and more self-control, upright and godly living in this present age while we wait, verse 13, while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. We must renounce ungodliness. We must live upright and godly lives so that this blessed hope we are waiting for would shine in this world through us, that others may be saved, that we may glorify God, and that we may live in assurance and joy and righteousness. Friends, can you bow with me as we pray that this word would settle in our hearts? Father God, I, I ask first and foremost that those who are here this morning and have made excuses for themselves as to why they would not come to you in faith, as to why they would not repent of their sins, throw away their sinful lifestyle and live with and in Jesus Christ under his rule and reign. Those who have found so many reasons, maybe Maybe, maybe philosophical or, or scientific or historical or, or simply excuses from within themselves why they would not believe on his dying work on the cross for their own salvation. Would today you bring them to life? That they would look and live. That they would take that bread of life and be filled. You would raise them up out of the grave and sit them on the throne with Jesus Christ. By your grace, would you do this, Lord? And I pray that those of us who, who know you, every one of us has in our mind memories and reflections on a past week, past month, past season of our life that have been riddled with sin, riddled with excuses for that sin, riddled with, with abuse of those near to us or with, with neglect of those who need us or, or living in secret acts of, of lust or theft or whatever it be, Lord, lies and slanders, those, those things we've allowed to grow in our hearts. Would you send mightily your sword coming from your mouth and would you cut those weeds from this garden? Would you cut those enemies out of our life? Would you cut those tumors off of our heart? Would you make us like Jesus? Would you help us to know, Lord, that your grace does not just forgive, but, but that grace which, which so infinitely forgave can now infinitely empower towards righteous living. Let us make no excuse. Let no enemy go unchallenged or rock unturned in our obedience to our King, who is Lord and Savior of all people who believe. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified especially as we come and sing this final song. Would you be glorified in the uplifting of our joyful praises for you are our gracious Lord, Saviour, King. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.